Now, due to the, the, volati the volatility in the world today, I think there's an understandable curiosity surrounding end time events. And to be honest, as I started to prepare for this morning's rapture, or this morning's teaching, <laughs> hey, is that a prophetic word? I don't know. As I began to prepare for this morning's teaching, and as Paul deals with the rapture of the church in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, I was beginning to really dig into and preparing for giving you guys a timeline of the last days, dealing specifically with the rapture of the church and the beginning of the seven-year tribulation period, the rise of the Antichrist, the abomination of desolation, the return of Christ with his church for his 1,000-year reign, the new heaven, the new earth, uh, our glorified bodies, what heaven was going to be like. I was wanting to dig into all of those things, but as I studied chapter 5, one of the key rules of exegesis is letting the verses speak for themselves. And scripture has a lot to say about end times events. And Paul has a lot to say about those things. But as I studied, I realized Paul's primary goal, at least in this letter, as he closed out his letter to the Thessalonians, his primary goal wasn't to satisfy people's academic curiosity about the return of Christ. Instead, it was to bring comfort. We read in 1 Thessalonians 4.18, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And then in 1 Thessalonians 5.11, therefore comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. And then in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, we exhort you, we beg of you brothers, warn those who are unruly. That word unruly in the Greek means an army in disarray, an army that, that doesn't know what they're doing, an army that, that doesn't understand what their mission is and what their purpose is. Paul says, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, and be patient with all. Because the church in Thessalonica was an anxious church. They had difficulty processing the loss of Christians those Christian loved ones who were dying before the return of Christ because there was a thought that Christ would, would return in their lifetime. And we'll see in 2 Thessalonians that some were teaching and some were believing that Christ had already come. And they wondered, what does, what does that mean for those who have died before Christ's return? And so Paul is going to address that anxiety and bring comfort with the truth of the gospel, because that is what brings comfort, that we have been justified before God through Christ's death and resurrection. We stand right before our creator. We're being sanctified. We're becoming more and more, more like Jesus every day, and one day we will be glorified when Christ returns, and we will live with him forever. So I don't know, as I completed my study, I said to my, myself, Paul did a great job. I know that's an understatement, but he brought me great comfort 
especially considering the world that we live in today. So that's my prayer for you this morning, that you would find comfort in the truth of Paul's words. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we're going to pick things up in verse 13. Where are you going with that baby? You can bring him up here if you want. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, Paul writes, I do not want you to be ignorant. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, who, who, who believes that? I do. So if he's talking about you, if you believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring him those who sleep in Jesus. So let's back up a little bit and remember Paul's letter to the Thessalonians was one of gratitude and celebration and excitement for what God was doing in their midst despite the, the persecution, but it was also a reminder that followers of Jesus are to be distinctly different from the world. And if you were here last week, Paul de dealt with our sexual ethic, that we are to look distinctly different from the world in the way that we approach sex, that it is between a husband and a wife in the safety of a covenantal commitment to one another. That is where human flourishing exists. And Paul says you will be set up Heart as you model this for the world around you, not buying into the culture's definition of what human flourishing is, but buying into what God has said, because he is the creator, and he knows all things, and he loves us. So he says, be different in this area, and now Paul's telling us that we are to also be different in the way that we grieve. Another thing that is common to humanity, humanity, the pain of loss. Seeing those that we love go to be with the Lord. He says we're to be set apart, different from the world, in this area that is common to all of humankind. Our approach to how we process death. He says, I do not want you to be ignorant. I want you to be informed. I want you to understand this. I want you to be convinced of this reality. And once you're convinced of it, what does he say the, the response to that is? He says, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. So how we grieve is directly tied to this truth that Paul is speaking this morning. How we handle the pain of loss. Because death brings up a number of questions for us, doesn't it? When we lose some, someone we deeply care about, we are faced with our own mortality. And we realize how fleeting death really is. And in a culture where we try to hide death away and not think about it and not talk about it, it's a reality for us all unless by God's grace Christ return before we part returns before we part this earth. So death reminds us of our own mortality, and it also brings up questions about the character and the nature of God, and honest questions sometimes. God, why would you take them from us? Especially at looking at the loss of someone 
who is young. God, why would you take them when they have not even lived out life to the fullest? See, the Thessalonians, they just had an immense amount of confusion around Christ's return. As I said, some thought Christ would definitely come in their lifetime, so they were quitting their jobs. They weren't having children. Why, Why invest in this life if Christ is right around the corner? Why plan? Why make plans if Christ is right around the corner? But then as their loved ones began to die before his return, the question on their minds were, was simply, what, what does this mean for them? And that's what Paul is responding to. And again, I, I want to remind you of 2 Thessalonians 2, 1. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if it's coming from us, as though the day of Christ had come. So you see that confusion in the church. Now, Paul, you'll see, he doesn't discourage the church from grieving altogether, but he just points out that in light of the gospel, we grieve differently when we understand the truth of the the gospel. The pain of loss, I don't want to understate this, losing part of yourself, really, when you lose a, a loved one, it's immense. And as one mission leader wrote after his son died at the age of 21, he wrote that the struggle for him was to bring his faith and his emotions together. Because his faith said one thing, the truth of God's word said one thing, but his immense emotional hurt said another. And he said his daily battle was to bring those things together. For death, for Christians, death is bittersweet. Immense joy, but immense pain. And those two things coexist in the same space. And Paul isn't discounting that. It is literally bittersweet for the believer. But Paul points out our grief is rooted in hope. When we, our grief is rooted in hope. It's more than just wishful thinking. I hope that my loved one is in a better place. It's much deeper than that. Now, Christians aren't the only ones that believe in an afterlife, right? Even Greek philosophers during Paul's time suggested that the soul was eternal. And there is disagreements about where the soul went. Some uh, paraded an idea that our souls became shadows of themselves and wandered about in Hades. But all of their ideas were mere suggestions, and that's not what Paul means by hope. Hope does not mean wishful thinking. Even the philosopher Theocritus wrote, hope is for the living. The dead are without hope. That's pretty hopeless if you ask me. But Paul, when he says hope, He's talking about a joyful and confident expectation. It's not a I wish, it's I know. 
I know what's in store for me. I know what's in store for my loved ones. It's a hope that does not disappoint. Christians may not be the only ones who believe there is life after death, but we are the only ones who have devoted our life to a man who was dead and now he lives. That's our hope, as Paul writes. Our hope is in Christ Jesus, the only one who has defeated death and lives today. That's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 54, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. If we believe Jesus died and rose again, then we are confident that God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Now, that's an interesting way to describe death, isn't it? Sleep, and we're going to come back to that quite a bit. But it's a term that's used throughout the New Testament, and it gives you this idea that death is temporary, that those who sleep will be awakened. What did Paul tell, Paul, what did Jesus tell his disciples when Lazarus died? He said, don't worry, Lazarus sleeps, but I am going to go wake him up. The word cemetery is Greek for a sleeping place. That makes it kind of creepy, but that's what it means. So this is Paul's really thesis of the remainder of the letter. Those who have died in Christ will rise again, and one day we will meet them in the air. Look at verse 15. For this we say to you, by the word of the Lord. This isn't Paul's idea. This isn't Paul's take on the afterlife. This is Paul repeating what the creator of the heavens and the earth has already taught. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede or go before those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we will always be with the Lord. Again, there's a lot of talk of prophecy this is your future. If you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is what's in store for you. So what do we have to look forward to? First and foremost, the return of Christ. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. And I'm going to pose this. This is a, one commentator suggested this, and it's not something that we know for certain, but it's an interesting thought. When Jesus returns with a shout, does he just come back like yelling? Ah, I, I don't know. I don't know that that's accurate. But think about what Jesus did when he approached Lazarus's tomb. 
it says in a loud voice, he said, Lazarus, come forth. And is it possible that when Jesus returns, he yells out to those who have died in him, come forth. And we respond in that moment. Just a possibility, and I thought that was neat. With a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead will rise first. So we have the return of Christ, then we have the resurrection of the saints, and then we have the rapture of the church. Many will tell you the word rapture isn't in the Bible. That's fine. Neither is the Trinity, but we know that it's true. Paul tells us we will be caught up in the air. We who are still alive will be caught up with them, those who have died in Christ, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And then the reunion. We will always be with the Lord. That's what we have to look forward to. That's what Paul is presenting to the church to bring them comfort. Hey, those who have died before Christ's return, guys, we're all going to be together. And Paul says in verse 18, comfort one another with these words. What's the question that every generation has been asking about Christ's return? Is he coming in our lifetime? Every generation hopes, wonders, thinks that he's returning in their lifetime. Let me pose this to you. No matter when Christ returns, it'll feel like it was in your lifetime. Pastor, what do you mean by that? Again, you can disagree with me in this area, and, and there's a lot of disagreement with people who love Jesus, they're doing their best to follow him, and when it comes to end times events and eschatology, there are differences of opinions. I understand that. But I'm just trying to go off of what Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica. After we die, after if we don't, if we're not living when Christ returns, and we take our last breath here on earth, what will be our next conscious experience? What will be the next experience that you are aware of after you breathe your last breath on earth? My understanding is if you die and you breathe your last breath, you will awaken to the shout of Christ. And you will awaken from your sleep to the sound of Christ returning. Think about that for a moment, because that's incredibly encouraging to me. For, and for those who I have lost. Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Have any of you had surgery? And they put you under anesthesia. And they say, count down from 10. And you say, 10, and then you're out. Did you go into a conscious state of just waiting for the surgery to end? Next thing you knew, you were waking up uh, in the recovery room as if no time had passed. 
Don't you hate those evenings that you are so tired and you lay your head down to sleep and the moment you close your eyes, the alarm sounds and you're like, there is no way that I have slept through the entire night and it's time to get up. I believe that's what Paul is communicating here. Comfort one another with these words. We, sometimes we think that Christ's return is so far away, but I believe deeply that it will feel like it's in our lifetime. Because whether he returns while we're still living or whether death sneaks up on us, the moment we die, our next experience will be Jesus saying, and I, I may be saying, come forth. And that's what we'll wake up to. That's encouraging to me because my grandfather's last day was sitting in a hospital bed in my parents' living room with my, my daughter Abby and my son Luke on his bed holding each of his hands. And that night he breathed his last. And to, um, to know that that was his last memory on earth and that immediately transitioned transitions into Jesus saying, come forth. My, my friend Brandon, who was driving home on Memorial Day weekend and a drunk driver ran a red light, killed him instantly, T-boned his car, that his next conscious experience was the call of Christ to spend eternity with him. That's deeply encouraging for me. Regardless of when Christ returns, it will certainly feel as if he is returning in our lifetime. And that's the framework of what Paul writes in the next chapter. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Because what's the other question that people have about Christ's return? Is it going to be in my lifetime? But then they want specifics, right? Right? And we're drawn to people who seem to have specifics. They do some mathematic equation based on, you know, different events throughout Scripture. And they tell you, you know, on Tuesday, November 27th, 2026, that's when Jesus is coming back. But we know better than that, right? Jesus has warned us about that kind of thinking. And Paul restates that in 1 Thessalonians 5.1. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. Again, Paul's responding to their questions about when is Jesus coming back. In Mark 13.3. Now as he sat, this is Jesus, as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, what did they want to know? Tell us when. Tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? Acts 1.6, therefore when they had come together, they asked Jesus saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? That's what people have been asking for generations. When? Give us a day, give us a time. Why do we ask that question? Why do we want to know the specific time that Christ re returns? I think it's let me use an example from my childhood. My mom would leave for the day. And she said, I'll be back at four. 
make sure you have this list of chores done by the time I get back. You think I'd jump on those chores to get them done? Nope. It's 3.45. I better get to work. I wonder if that's, there's a little bit of that mentality in this. I want to know when Christ is returning because then I'm going to shape up. Then I'm going to start living for him. If it's close, then I better change the way I live and change the way that I approach this world. And that is a broken way of thinking. And that's what Paul points out. Man, if I just knew when he was coming, then I could properly prepare. But Paul says that's the wrong question. It reflects an incorrect mindset about Christ's return. We are thinking about his return all wrong if that's why we want to know the specifics of his return. Look at what Paul says in verse 2. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, you are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Who died for us? Jesus Christ. He who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. So I want to point out, Paul is actually making a distinction between believers, those who live in the day, and those who live in the night, those who drink figuratively and sometimes literally, those who are drunk at night, those who sleep at night, and those who are of the day. He says, the thief comes in the night. I don't know many thieves that notify their victims of when they're coming. Hey, plan on robbing your house tonight. Probably around 2 a.m. if that works for you. That's not, that's not how they operate. They come unannounced when everyone is sleeping or when everyone is passed out drunk. That's when the thief comes. That's exactly why Jesus taught. That's, what, that's exactly what Jesus taught, and that's what Paul is simply repeating here. He says, Jesus is returning like a thief. People do not know when he's coming, but it doesn't mean that we don't know the signs and the seasons of his return. In Matthew 24, 36, Jesus said, but of that day, after the disciples asked, when is it going to be? Jesus says, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. And then in Acts 1-7, his response to them is, if it is not, it is not for you to know times or seasons, seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. So we can take that to mean, well, no one knows, so we have no idea when his return is, right? But did you see kind of the, the balance to that? This distinction I mentioned between you and they, 
He says, they, they say peace and safety, and then sudden destruction comes upon them. They shall not escape. Those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at the night. They are the ones who are unprepared for Christ's coming. But there's another group. But you, you are not in the darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You know the thief is coming. It's weird to call Jesus a thief, but just for this analogy, he did steal us away from death, right? You are all sons of light. You are sons of the day. So don't sleep like the others do. Don't live like the world. Watch and be sober. That's the part of what Paul is saying. Just because we don't know the exact time and date doesn't mean we should live as if we're not prepared. Because he is coming. We may not know the day or the hour, but look at what else Jesus tells us in Matthew 24, 42. Watch, watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Then Peter writes in 2 Peter 3.10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these, all these, things, will be excuse me, all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? looking for and hastening the coming, uh, co the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Being prepared, living with Christ's imminent return at the forefront of our minds, knowing that whether he comes in this life or the next, he is coming soon. In Revelation 3, 3, remember therefore how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. Do not be caught off guard like those who are asleep. We are to be children of the day. So Paul exhorts us, live like that. So again, I'd pose, what does it mean to be prepared? My father-in-law is a prepper. He is ready to go at the first sign of, of the world collapsing. He's got... And I, I don't disagree. If this is what you do too, amazing. Our family have, has made some plans as well because we should be prepared. But what does Paul mean to be prepared? Well, it comes with an understanding of this sobering reality. Let me ask you again. 
if you're a believer and your next conscious experience after you breathe your last breath will be hearing the call of Christ to come and join him, what if you die separated from Christ? And you breathe your last breath here on earth. What will you awaken to? Or if Christ returns like a thief because you were not prepared for it, you had heard the gospel over and over. People who love you had shared it with you. And just now wasn't the time. There was too much life to be lived. Whether you die separated in your sin or Christ returns before you turn to him and, and receive his forgiveness, what will you awaken to? Scripture tells us that those who die separated from Christ will awaken to Christ's judgment. For those who are believers, it'll be the most amazing event. I mean, even words trying to describe when Christ calls us home, they, they fail. But the wonder of it. But for those who haven't given their life to Christ, despair to breathe your last breath here on earth and immediately wake up and realize i was wrong i rejected christ i did not relent i did not yield to his goodness and his love and his mercy today is the day of salvation and for us to know that as born-again believers, I don't know about you, but that gave me a renewed sense of purpose as I shared the truth of the gospel. I don't want anyone to experience that. I don't want anyone to fall asleep not knowing Christ and wake up to God's wrath. What a terrible, terrible event that would be. And it doesn't have to be that way. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2 we read, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. That should be sobering for us as believers. How can we hold the truth back, knowing that that will be the reality of some? How are we to live in light of Christ's return? Paul says, let us who are of the day be sober. That means have a clear mind about the life that we live and the condition of the world we're living in. Put on the breastplate of faith and love. Take Jesus at his word. Love him. Love those around us. Put on the helmet of salvation, the hope that we have, the confidence that we have in our future hope. Because God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Take a look at verse 11. Paul now describes, as he closes this letter to the church in Thessalonica, he says, this is how we live with Christ's imminent return in the forefront of our minds. In verse 11, we comfort each other. 
and we edify one another, meaning we build one another up. And he says, just as you're already doing it, do it all the more. And we urge you, brothers, recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. You hear what Paul is saying? Christ's return is at hand. What business does the church have being divided? What business does the church have being in relational discord? If there is disunity in the church, that is not God's plan and purpose. Christ's return is soon. Make peace with those you need to make peace with. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly. Warn those soldiers that are in our army who are living as if we're not in the midst of the last days. Bring them back into the fold. Remind them of the high purpose and the high calling that God has placed upon their lives. Comfort the faint-hearted. Comfort those who have grown weary in doing good. Comfort those who are under the, the yoke and the burden of a world that has just a constant flow of terrible news. Comfort them. Remind them of the future hope and that we have been called to live as lights in this fallen world. Uphold the weak among you. Be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil. Don't live a spite-filled life trying to get back at those who have wronged you. That's not the heart of Christ. Now may the... Always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. Rejoice always pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Don't quench the Spirit. Don't say no to the Spirit. The Spirit is a gift. The person of the Spirit is a gift. Why would we say no, no to the leading of God's Spirit in our life? He leads us into life. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you, set you apart. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who calls you, he who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Paul says, take this letter. They're not my words, the words of the Lord. Pass it around. Here we are. It made it all the way to us. 2,000 years later, Paul's word of encouragement, his word of comfort, his word of exhortation, his warning makes it to us as we sit here this morning that Christ's return is imminent. We haven't been promised tomorrow. And whether we die before he returns or he returns in this lifetime, Jesus is coming soon. Be prepared. 